I, um, my name is Marshall. I'm a senior pastor here, and this is the first time in two and a half years that uh, I've only preached one sermon on a Sunday, uh, because it's the first time in two and a half years that we have all been in the same uh, room. So it's good. It's really good to see your faces today. Um, amen, right? It's good to be together. Uh, I do want to report uh, there is a team of youth in Costa Rica uh, I'll be talking about them a little bit later. I was texting with one of the chaperones, Jeb Boatman, this morning, and they're having a great time. Uh, they're already having fun. Uh, landed in Costa Rica yesterday morning, or maybe yesterday afternoon early, but they're already uh, into their work in San Jose, and it was so good to get that text this morning uh, from Jeb telling me just how much fun a team that uh, is new to each other uh, is, is already having. So praise be the Lord. Let's be praying for our youth and their chaperones in uh, Costa Rica. Let me pray before we look at uh, some of the passages that Molly just read for us. God, first of all, we want to give thanks and pray for our team in Costa Rica for these nine young men and women and the four chaperones. Be with them. Give them a great week. In San Jose with Viva Ministries, we pray that you give them safety, that you give them courage, that you give them faith, uh, that this is a time and a, even a week in their life that even defines what the rest of their life looks back. We thank you even for what it means for our church. Be with our friends, our brothers and sisters in Costa Rica. God, we pray now as we come to look at the church at Jerusalem and the church in Antioch, these churches that are 2,000 years removed from us but have so much to teach us. I pray, Lord, that we would learn. And I pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Over Memorial Day weekend, on Memorial Day weekend, I was in Amsterdam. I flew to Amsterdam uh, for a short weekend to visit our partners there, our mission partners, Mar Mario and Elsbeth Taffener. If you did not know them, if your time uh, preceded or has followed them, Mario and Elsbeth are German nationals who started attending Grace in August of 2015 until they moved back to Europe in December of 2019. On literally the last night, the very last night of their four years, four and a half years in America, uh, we ordained Mario to gospel ministry and commissioned them as a family and sent them out as missionaries to the Netherlands and really to all of, uh, of the world. They are still members of our church uh, and they are supported by us financially. So I want to be with them. Mario is a professor of Old Testament at Tyndall Seminary in the Netherlands, just outside of Amsterdam. Tyndall is a seminary that is designed to train and equip pastors and ministry leaders in Europe, in Asia, and Africa. They come to Amsterdam to be trained, and then they go back to their home countries. I was there for the graduation weekend. I had a lovely time. I'd never been to Amsterdam before. The art, the beauty, my hotel was on the banks of a canal. It was so lovely and picturesque. I had a great time to spend with Mario, had several dinners with him, had the opportunity to have dinner with them in their home, which was lovely. They have two children, maybe a third by now. I don't, if somebody knows if they had their third child, Elsbeth uh, is due any day. But again, the timing of my trip was to be present at the graduation ceremony for Tyndall Seminary. And it was a lovely day. It was a packed house with a diverse faculty from all over the world conferring degrees on women and men from around the world who would go forth from that place's to places like Malawi, back to Finland, and to India. It was so great to be there, to see Mario on the stage and all of his academic regalia, and then conferring degrees on these students who had come to Amsterdam to be trained and who were now going out. It was such an encouraging time. On Sunday morning, 
I got to worship with a church called Grace Church of Amsterdam. Uh, they were sending people out that day. I kind of felt this bittersweetness. I spoke with the pastor afterwards. It's just so hard and bittersweet. You have these people you love and you're sending them out. Uh, but it was great to be with that church. Unexpected highlight of the trip was I stumbled upon and literally into a prayer meeting. There was this meeting of this ministry by Youth with a Mission, YWAM. They have a ministry uh, trying to reach women and children who are trapped in the sex trade. And I literally like stumbled into this prayer meeting and was able to be with them for a few moments. It was such a highlight. Another highlight of the trip was meeting with, I'm going to butcher the name, even though I spent many hours in my life with this man, uh, Jusbert Vandenbrink. If you were with us in the fall, Jusbert and his, I'm sorry, I, sh- I meant to see a Dutch person before the service and ask how to say this. Uh, but he, and I told he and Mario, that they, so they're probably watching online, hello online, hello Europe. Um, sorry, I'm butchering your name. Um, uh, so, but, uh, <laughs> somebody Dutch say it. Heisberg, thank you, thank you, okay. Uh, as a, a theo- I'm so embarrassed, we're going to have to cut this, he hopefully he's not watching it live. Is a theologian, he's a very prominent European theologian, just published a big book that was actually published in English as well as Dutch at the Free University of, the Amsterd- of Amsterdam. Uh, they were with us for three months in the fall. They kind of sat back here, he and his family, his teenage son, his 20-something-year-old uh, daughter. They were here with us as he was at TED's for the fall. You, many of you would have met them uh, this past fall. But I was particularly keen to see him and meet with him because he teaches at a university that I've heard about all my life. It's called the Free University of Amsterdam. And it's the place, if you know the name R.C. Sproul, it's where R.C. Sproul got his Ph.D. And it's where I would argue maybe the most significant dead theologian uh, who we still read today, a man named Herman, Herman Bavink, uh, taught. But the reason I really wanted to go to the free was that one of my, they call it the free or the VU. One of the reasons I wanted to visit him and go to the VU, the free, was because the VU had been founded by a man, one of my heroes, named Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper. You might not know the name Abraham Kuyper. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He died in 1920 after a very full life. He was a pastor. He was a theologian. He delivered um, what's called the Stone Lectures in 1898 at Princeton, uh, which are some of the most influential, even in how I think about teaching and preaching today. A very famous line from those lectures is, there is not one inch of the universe over which God does not say, mine. There's not one inch over the universe over which God does not say, mine. That means everything you do is relevant to God. It's a Christian worldview. But Kuyper was not just a theologian and a pastor. He was also a journalist. He started a newspaper. He was also an academician. He actually started the Free University. And interestingly enough, he was also a politician. And from 1901 to 1905, he was the prime minister of the Netherlands. Now, you know, in America here, we have had Christian, uh, Christian uh, presidents, you know, at the highest level. We've had Christian presidents, men with real faith. But to my knowledge, we've never had a pastor as president, and we've certainly never had a theologian of the caliber of Abraham Kuyper in our highest office. But Kuyper was the prime minister of the Netherlands. So I was very curious, though, about Amsterdam, okay? Here's a country where my heroes, my theological and pastoral heroes, had served at the highest level, right? But you know what Amsterdam is known for today? It's known for being secular, Frankly, it's known for its immorality. Marijuana has been legal in in Amsterdam for decades, long before it was here. Prostitution is legal and very public in Amsterdam. Human flesh is literally for sale and on display 
in shop windows, literally. Perhaps the saddest site I visited while in Amsterdam was the old church, the oldest Protestant church, 500 plus years old in Amsterdam, beautiful, ancient, and it is on the doorstep of the red light district where these women are for sale. And it is basically just an exhibition hall, a museum. It's almost as if the red light district was mocking the church, saying, we have won, we have swallowed your influence. That was the saddest thing, the most discouraging thing, was just to hear the struggles of the dirt's church. Uh, this once vibrant church where the sermons of Kuiper and Bavink pulsated are largely now dead and empty. So I went to see our partners at Amsterdam, but I went to learn about what secularism looks like in its full bloom. But I also wanted to see these pockets of joy, of hope, and of Christian love, to see this packed house of students at Tyndall, to go to Grace Church, and to see it's almost like these sprouts in a desolate land. What does it look like to be a living church in a secular land? Now, for a little over a month, we've been in a sermon series called The Living Church. And this sermon series is built around, and if you look with your, in your Bible or your bulletin, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. After Pentecost, it said, And they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And we have been saying that the living church, it learns, that the living church loves, the living church worships. In a few weeks, we will see the living church prays. Okay, so Acts 2.42, it's this seminal text. I think it's, it's not, we've said it's not just a description of the ancient church, but it is a prescription for us that we're to be committed to these things, devoted to these things, loving, learning, worshiping, praying. But my favorite Bible commentator, John Stott, points out that although thousands upon thousands of sermons have been preached on Acts 2.42, if you stop there and you only talk about Acts 2.42, you miss something vital and important about the early church and about any living church. Namely, you miss the witnessing the growth. Look with me at chapter, 47, uh, chapter 2, verse 47b. Look with me. And it says, in the Lord, after all of this, they were committed, devoted to these things. And it says, in the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Friends, the living church does not just learn, worship, and love. The living church grows, and it grows by conversion. The living church grows. This is in line. Last week, Nick preached on Pentecost. The, the, the church at, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down on God's people, and he sends them out. It is the nature of the character of our God to go out, to reach, to tell the good news. And so, if you will indulge me, and I am asking for an indulgence this morning, I want to take our eyes to, for just a moment off the church at Jerusalem, for this week and next, and I want to look at the living church that existed at Antioch. Antioch was the major resource church in the first century. It's mentioned multiple times in the book of Acts. It happens to be, Mario reminded me of this, the very first sermon, I preached on these verse, some of these verses, the very first sermon the Taffeners visited in August of 2015. They actually kind of chose our church based on that. They wanted to be a part of a sending church like the church at Antioch. But the church in Jerusalem, the reason I'm doing this, because the church in Jerusalem was in a very religious context. Literally, they were still worshiping in the temple. But Antioch was not like that. 
Antioch, the church at Antioch was much more pluralistic. It was much more diverse. This is a little bit of anachronism. It would be secular, like Amsterdam, like Chicago, like the North Shore. And so I want us to see five things today from the church at Antioch, the living church. First, the living church grows by conversion. The living church suffers. The living church wrestles with the gospel. The living church holds the gifts of God loosely. And then finally, the living church keeps the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus. Now, let me first tell you a few things about the city of Antioch. Now, if you can imagine the, uh, I wish I had a map with me. If you can imagine uh, the Mediterranean Sea is an oblong rectangle. It is in the north uh, east corner, the top right corner. That's where Antioch is, okay? Modern-day Turkey, southern modern Turkey, right? It was the third most important city of the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a crossroads. If you can imagine, if it's there in the Middle East, uh, you can imagine how it was a crossroads of commerce and of culture. It was a very densely packed city, much more so than even modern-day New York City, and without sewer, without garbage service, plus barn animals. It was, in other words, very crowded and very dirty. It was a place of transience. You had a lot of retired soldiers who were sent there, a lot of slaves, people going to and fro. Interesting, one of the things that's interesting about Antioch is there were 18 ethnic quarters within Antioch, all with walls between them. Very diverse, but not integrated. Actually, one of the Romans' ways of controlling their population was by having the various different uh, groups fight with each other. There was a order, way to maintain order by encouraging chaos. So the Parthians and the Syrians, for instance, they would have them fight with each other. So that's the city of Antioch. Let's first look at that the living church grows by conversion. People came to faith in large numbers. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 20. These are in the very early days of the Christian church. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is an echo of what we saw in chapter 2, verse 47b, where it says, And the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What I, I quoted that verse just a moment ago, right? This is an echo of that. The importance and centrality of this cannot be overstated. A church that is not seeing people come to faith is a church that is slowly but surely dying. I don't care how robust it might look, how many programs it might have. The health of a church is judged not by the programs that are run, but by the professions that are made. A year ago, this party a year ago, was welcoming my family and I back from a four-month sabbatical. It was a lovely time. It was a lovely party. Uh, it was just great to be back with you after being away on a lovely sabbatical. But the greatest gift for us that day, at least the greatest gift for me that day, was the baptism of my friend Muhammad. Raised in a different part of the world, believing very different things. Came to atheism and has come to faith through the ministry of RUFI. And to come back after being away for you for so many months and to come back and to see somebody professing their faith and baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was a great gift. The greatest gift of that day. You see, a healthy church, let me use a medical analogy, a healthy church is not just a pediatric clinic that helps people mature and kind of grow up in their faith. A healthy church has to be an obstetrics ward 
where people are born again to new life because their neighbors, their friend, and their churches are telling others about the good news of Jesus. The living church grows by conversion. But second, the living church faces suffering and persecution with great faith. The story of the church of Antioch is that the gospel of Jesus Christ came there and only came there because of persecution at the church in Jerusalem. This is a little bit of a point about the church at Jerusalem. I won't give you all of the story of Acts, but in Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen is martyred for his Christian faith in Jerusalem. That's Acts chapter 7. And then it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 that a persecution grew, uh, broke out against the church and so that the apostles were scattered all over Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the world. And so that's what happens. They start to scatter from Jerusalem. They start to be sent out. Verse 11, chapter 11, look with me, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. See this, friends, the persecution of God's people, the suffering of God's people, even the death of a man, was not punishment. It was God's gift. It was his plan. It was his providence. Without the persecution and suffering of the church at Jerusalem, there would be no church at Antioch. Do you see this? The living church suffers with great faith. Friends, you know this. The American church is headed into stiff cultural winds. We are not yet being persecuted. We might one day be persecuted. When that day comes, do not assume that that is the punishment of God. Do not even assume that that is a bad thing. It is God's plan. It is his providence sometimes to use suffering to take the gospel and spread the seed to the corners of the world. That's what happened at Antioch. The persecution at Jerusalem led to the dispersal, led to the gospel getting to Antioch. Let me illustrate this. I've told this story before about my brother on a personal level. Uh, my brother lived, he graduated from college, he moved to Atlanta to be an investment banker. And his faith was just kind of like bumping along, bumping along. But then he decided to move to San Francisco. You know, kind of from the American South, cultural Christianity, to San Francisco. At that time and still one of the more secular places in America. He moved to San Francisco and his faith flourished. It came to life. It came to life. Suffering, persecution, being a religious minority are oftentimes leading indicators of great faith. Oftentimes, leading indicators of great faith. Do you know the only major Bible character besides Jesus, the only major Bible character besides Jesus in whom we do not see any flaws or lack of faith? The only one, major character. Daniel. The only major Bible character in whom we do not see flaws or lack of faith. Do you know the story of Daniel? A person persecuted, suffering, lion's den, exile, cut off from his community. Great faith is born. Great faith is born with great joy where there is suffering. Friends, do not fear. The living church and living Christians face suffering and persecution with faith, with love, and with joy. Like these early Christians in Jerusalem, like Daniel. The third thing about the living church, and I wish I had more time because this is really interesting, but the, th the living church wrestles with the gospel and wrestles with the implications of the gospel. Um, 
this is hard to, uh, here I'm going for it, okay. I've mispronounced people's names, let's, here we go, okay. Chapter 11, it says in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, well, I got to go back. Okay, I got to go back. Verse 19. Now, those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over uh, Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, as the word went forth, they would only go to the synagogue and only talk to Jews. But then, verse 20, but where there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, which is the Gentiles, the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, earlier in the book of Acts, you have the gospel going forth to individuals, an Ethiopian official, a Roman official. That's Acts 8 and Acts 9. But Antioch is the first church to really wrestle with, to really work out what it means for the gospel of Jesus to go to people who are not Jews. How, and the question that's raised at Antioch is how Jewish do non-Jews need to be? Now, if I had more time, I'd develop this, and I'd tell you how that actually the conflict in Antioch is what leads to the first great council of the church in Acts chapter 15. I would take you to Galatians 2, and I would show you how this is where Peter and Paul got into a fight. Paul basically rebukes the apostle Peter for being a hypocrite and a racist for the way he talked about and lived with his Jewish ways among these non-Jewish people. My point is this, though. The living church is always wrestling with the gospel. What does it look like to live out the unchanging truth of the gospel in a world that is changing all the time? What does it look to live out the untruthing? That's not an easy question, by the way. What does it look like to live out the unchanging truth of the gospel in a culture that is changing all the time? Friends, that is our question. And as we wrestle with it, it is our privilege Because, friends, if there weren't the church at Antioch, you wouldn't be sitting here if you're a Gentile. Let me just, I mean, they wrestled with this. They actually fought for their rights. They they embraced tension and conflict so that the gospel could be for all people. The living church wrestles with the gospel and all of its implication. The fourth thing about the living church, and we'll talk a little bit more about this next week as well. The living church holds the gifts of God with open hands hands, which means they send out their best. We'll look more at this next week. Again, the church at Antioch held loosely to the gifts of God. Next week, we'll look at the way they held loosely to their financial resources. This week, we look at how they hold loosely to their human resources. Look with me at chapter 13. After several years, uh, Barnabas and Paul have been pastoring in uh, Antioch, and it says this, the church at Antioch, chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, Saul means Paul, uh, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and they sent them off. Now, it's hard for me to impress upon you how big a deal this is. This is a church that willingly sends out the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. I mean, they're all NBA, right? Right here. The Apostle Paul was the greatest theologian in the history of the church, the greatest church planner ever, the greatest teacher of Christianity. I mean, his vision was so great and so big you can't even imagine it. But it's not just Paul they sent out. They also sent out Barnabas. 
I mean, Barnabas was this amazing leader and developer of gifts, this great team builder. He was known as the son of encouragement. It was Barnabas, not Paul, who saw the gifts of people like John Mark. It was even Barnabas who saw the giftedness of Paul and the importance of Paul. He was a team builder. This dynamic duo, this pastor and this teacher, and the church at Barnabas, and the church at, uh, at uh, where am I talking about? Antioch. The church at Antioch, they held them so loosely that they were willing to send out their very best. I may be the equivalent in 2016, the year the Cubs won the World Series, if at the All-Star break they said, you know, we don't really need Javi Baez and Chris Bryant and John Lester. Let's just send those guys out. Sending out their best. The church at Antioch held loosely to the gifts of God. As my friend Albert Shim has said, the health of a church is not judged by its seating capacity. The health of a church is judged by its sending capacity. Friends, our church has given us so much. We have so much, so many human resources just in this room today. Because of our connection to the seminary up in Deerfield, Ted's, to Northwestern, and just the city of Chicago, we get so many people that we get the privilege of sending out. God almost forces us. I, mean, I, didn't, I don't like this, actually. I wish this weren't true. But God is almost, he's like he's pried our hand open. You're going to have an open hand, Grace Church. You're going to have an open hand. So we've been able to send out missionaries to places like Amsterdam, Ukraine, Laura Ball, India. We've been able to send out pastors to New York City, Virginia, Colorado, St. Louis, Boston, Irvine, Irvine, California. Two weeks ago, we sent out our own Chris Reed. I mean, you love to hear Chris preach. We just sent Chris out to be an RUF pastor at Howard University in Washington, D.C. At the end of this summer, we'll send Allie Brent to London, to work with a church in London. And it's not just pastors and teachers we send out. One of our founding elders we sent out, he took the role of being the CEO of Goodwill on the East Coast. Another founding elder of our church uh, went out to pioneer a new program at a state university in the South. People that we love, that we send out. I mean, we love these people. Sending them out is bittersweet to see them leave. We have to hold loosely the gifts of God. But friends, here's the next frontier of our sending. We have to learn to hold loosely and let go of the one thing in the world that we love most. Our children and our grandchildren. You know, this trip to Costa Rica, uh, well, I'm glad these children are going. And I hope it impacts their faith. I hope it informs what the rest of their life. But my prayer is that some of them, that it plants the seeds of cross-cultural ministry, becoming a missionary, becoming a pastor. I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give you all the history of our church, but I feel like we're entering grace. We're kind of in grace 2.2. There's like 1.0, 2.0. We're like 2.2. The pandemic's just everything scrambled. Uh, but you know what grace 3.0 looks like? Grace 3.0 is not a new building. It's not a staffing structure. Grace 3.0 is when right here we lay hands on a child of this church who has been raised up in this church, lay hands on them, hold them loosely, and send them out. That is Grace 3.0. Holding loosely to the thing we love most, our children and our grandchildren. Friends, the living church holds the gifts of God with open hands. But finally and most importantly, the living church preaches Jesus 
and glorifies God. Preaching Jesus and glorifying God. These are actually two sides of the same coin. First, the living church preaches Jesus. Look with me. Chapter 11 again, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, and I love the way it says this, preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching, not preaching religion, not preaching morality, not preaching politics, preaching Jesus. Because when you hold high Jesus, it disarms people. It has to. Because when you really preach Jesus, it's not about the church, it's not about the pastor, it's not even about you and your good efforts and how good a person you are. When you preach Jesus, it radically disarms people. To say something that we say here a lot, because when you really preach Jesus, people start to see, I am more wicked than I ever dared imagine. That's what Jesus says. You're so wicked, the Son of God had to die for you. That's how wicked you are. And he did. Which is to say, you are more loved and accepted than you ever could imagine hoping. You're wicked in love. That's what preaching Jesus does. It holds Jesus high, which leads to, and it's not surprising that a church that preached the Lord Jesus, after years of a church marked by that type of ministry, they send the Apostle Paul out in chapter 13. He basically travels around what is modern-day uh, Turkey for two years. And then in chapter 13, he comes back. Are you with me time-wise? They preach Jesus. They send Paul out. He pat travels around in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And then he comes back to his home church. This is, if you want to know where, where uh, uh, Bible trivia, where is uh, Paul's uh, church membership, Antioch. But Acts chapter 14, verse 24. He's been out teaching. For two years, preaching, planting churches. And then it says this, verse 24, they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch. That's the end of their trip. Where, what happened in Antioch? That's where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that had been fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done for them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They didn't say all the things that Paul did. They didn't say all the things that Paul and Barnabas did. They said what God did, what they glorified, not the man, they glorified God. You know, it takes the eye of faith to see this, that God is always at work. If you've ever been in a meeting with me, I almost always start a meeting with what I call a gospel renewal story. Do you see where God is working? Looking for where God is at work. What has God done? Because when we name and celebrate the things that God has done, it creates a feedback loop. It creates a feedback loop. We celebrate what God has done and we look in hope to what he will and can do. So today, we celebrate with a party the beginning of Sunder. But we're also celebrating the life of Muhammad. We're celebrating uh, Mario and Elsbeth being sent out. We're celebrating Chris Reed being sent out. Allie Brent later in the summer. We're celebrating our Costa Rica team. And as we celebrate, we're pointing to Jesus, bragging about God and what he has done. And we are friends looking in hope for what he might do among us. May it be so. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.